1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Dozeman. In recent years, questions around the nature of truth in facts have re-entered public debate, often in discussions around journalistic bias and whether politically neutral reporting is possible or even desirable. Many pundits have tried to place blame for the increasingly slippery and fickle nature of truth in reporting on the ideas developed in much 20th century philosophy, particularly postmodern theory. However, my guest today, Santiago Zabala, argues that this is to mistake a diagnosis for the condition itself and makes the case in his recent book, Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, that much of the hermeneutic and postmodern philosophical traditions can help us navigate these times out of joint. Santiago Zabala is a philosopher and cultural critic and ICREA research professor of philosophy at the pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona. He is author of many books, including, among others, Why Only Art Can Save Us, Aesthetics in the Absence of Emergency from Columbia University Press in 2017. His opinion articles have appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, and Al Jazeera, among other international media outlets. So, Santiago Zabala, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: So we always like to have uh, authors introduce themselves. So, can you tell us a bit about who you are and what your main research tends to focus on?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I am. Um, my philosophical investigations are, of course, um, very much uh, fine with continental philosophy and, in particular, with hermeneutics. Um, uh, and well, my my research, at least these past years, have, have dealt mostly with uh political philosophy and how to understand uh political philosophy through hermeneutics. Um and well this 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 brand new book um it's really it's really a way to to sum up many of the um many of the themes that I tried to develop this these past years, in particular the problem of being, of ontology. The problem of interpretation, hermetics and also, of course, the problem of of emergency. Uh, all these three uh, all these three concepts I try to uh, to understand through what today we call uh, the age of alternative facts. Um, all this, of course, taking into, into consideration that Heidegger is more or less the, the starting point for philosophical for all philosophical investigations. Although my reading of Heidegger, of course. It, it it's very different from the ones that many other people do, as all classics have different interpreters. Uh, mine has a lot to do with the reading of Heidegger that an Italian philosopher did, Gianni Vattimo, um, and also in part also which, which, which with what Richard Royti did with Heidegger.
1: Wonderful. So in the book er, in the beginning of your book, you look at the now famous bit about alternative facts from Kellyanne Conway. You argue that the reason alternative facts hit such a strange cultural nerve is because it came at a time when various other questions related to institutions, authority, and truth were being raised. So as an introduction to your book, can you unpack how you understand the nature of truth in our current cultural moment?
0: Right. This is is an excellent question, um, particularly the idea of cultural nerve. I think that sort of sums up the problem today um well the reason the, the problem with truth today i think it has a lot to do with um with this so-called return to order that i like to that i like to discuss um we have uh, since nine eleven and i think also since this emergency we are now uh, confronting um the, this pandemic um there has been uh, a big return to order, in other words an intensification of uh, of the framing powers that in some way um, limit our freedoms. So when people discuss or say that after 9-11 everything changed, I think it, it's quite the opposite. Uh, there has been an intensification of the structures of power that were that were already uh, at work before. In other words, after 9-11 we had more military intervention in the Middle East. We had more financial. Uh, constraints throughout and of course even from a technological point of view and civilians things got in even worse uh, and this is it seems that this is also what's going to happen now with this uh, emergency we're facing now so the problem with truth now is that uh, in some way all this disintensifications intensifications um, have in some way requested us or requested some of us to in some way to defend ourselves even more and of course i'm referring to to, to defense, in the sense of of uh, returning to those closed societies that Popper uh, already criticized uh, almost a century ago. So the idea is that um, troops today has been has been framed even more. In other words, uh, the, this return to order that in some way uh, Conway it's it's only a symptom because her idea of uh, of requesting of, of trying to uh, to tell us that there are alternative truths. In this case, she was referring to um, the statement about the attendance attendance numbers of at Trump inauguration in 2017. She's really uh, imposing a truth. So, in some way, truth has been once has been has, you know the idea that we can in some way discuss what truth is has been dissolved has been has been lost once again. Uh, and this is because truth is being imposed now. Uh, much more than before, so uh, this imposition, in some ways, what has been framing this cultural this cultural return to order, which I claim uh, it, it's very it's very clear and it's very um, uh, it can be felt very well in 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 a number of intellectuals, not only in, uh, in speculative realism or new ontolo- or new realism, as they call it but also in, in also in, actually also in some continental philosophy that has a lot to do with feminology. So the idea is that truth uh, in some way has been, has been framed once again and it's been imposed uh, in, such a, in such a way that uh, everybody has its own truth, but in such a way that it, it's framed. There is no possibility of interpretation anymore. So if there is no possibility of interpretation anymore, everybody imposes its own of course, creating a higher conflict. And this conflict, I think it's evident in the way Trump, of course, treats the press, but not only Trump, of course, this return to order that I mentioned, has it's also obvious in many right wing populists that uh, I hope we'll discuss later.
1: Wonderful kind of introduction then. So turning to Martin Heidegger's philosophy, which forms the conceptual backbone of much of your work, you turn to his understanding of metaphysics, which he understands as the history of different formations of being. And one of the most dominant elements of this history for him was metaphysics as parousia or presence. Can you explain what he meant by this?
0: Okay, so, um, well, on on the one hand, Heidegger, um, he, uh, he his, his idea of metaphysics and the way his destruction of metaphysics he, uh, he operates in being and time, it's all about trying to explain how, how being has, has only been interpreted as something present and had something present right now, in other words, in the present. Um, this, um, this is a problem uh, because in some way, existence has been determined by time, not only exclusively in presence, but also ignoring other times, in other words, other presences there can be. Uh, and this is what he called in and time in paragraph forty four if I remember correctly the ontological difference now for those of us who are not philosophers, this basically what Heidegger is trying to tell us is that well um, philosophy and of course all the other uh disciplines as well have been in some way um, conditioned by this interpretation of being of reality um, of course this is uh, from a philosophical point of view this is the reading I, I I try to make of Heidegger, it's something very poor. In other words, being your reality, it's, it's not simply what is here present. Uh, there's much more at stake. Uh, if we now think of um, um, of the mouse we have here in our hand, perhaps, well, the mouse, it's, it's an object. We call it a mouse. It's, it's useful for a certain world well, to navigate on the internet, for example. Um, but that that's not all, right? Uh, it is so many other things which are, which its meanings are implied in uh, in the difference of its object. In other words, this mouse also has, its, it can be something useful, it can be something beautiful, it can be something um, it, it, it's objectivity is not its only meaning in some way. And the idea that of Heidegger is that, well, we have to be very careful and we have to understand okay, we have to, in some way, dismantle or Deconstruct as Derrida and so many others would do afterwards. Uh, this idea that well that 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 objects are they're just there and we don't really have to do anything else besides trying to describe them as accurately as we can. Uh, this is this is why um, it is very important to to understand Heidegger's uh, notion or idea of metaphysics as some sort of limitation we have. Uh, and this limitation has also a lot to do with an indifference. An indifference we have towards what objects might mean or what objects can in some way uh, uh, tell us. And this, of course, is something that you know, we feel now. We under- I, think, yeah. I hope some of us understand, for example, with, with climate change. Uh, uh, in other words, we are framed within one understanding of how we can use the climate with the environment, when of course there are many others, but how come we don't we don't move toward we we don't overcome that? Well, we don't overcome that because of the way we think and the way we think it it's purely framed within metaphysics. So this is the way I like to understand what Heidegger's Heidegger's problem with the ontological difference. In other words, between how we interpret what being is and how what and whether and what is it important to know what being is in itself. This difference is more or less at the center of. Uh, I think, of Heidegger's philosophy, but also of how we should um, think not only about Heidegger's philosophy or about philosophy, but also how we should actually philosophize in some way. Philosophy does not end with the ontological difference, in other words, by understanding this, this framing, but actually it starts from there. So we have to move beyond this.
1: One of the ways Heidegger wants to shift our understanding of philosophy is to think of it as a conversation, hence his somewhat casualized entry into philosophy with the question, How's it going with being? What happens when we think of philosophy in conversational terms as opposed to a series of monologues?
0: Okay, so, um, well, the question you, you, um, well, how's it going with being? Um, It's a translation um, of Uh, of the new fundamental question of philosophy that Heidegger um, poses in Introduction to Metaphysics of 1936. And it's a very important question that he... Because the the, the original or the classical fundamental question of philosophy is different, right? It's basically what is... uh, Why is there nothing instead of something? Well, Heidegger transformed uh, in 1936 these questions and think that, well, perhaps we should change you know, the main question of philosophy by how this state is with saying how is it going with being? And this is, I think, it's revolutionary. And actually, I, I work on this on another book of mine, The Remains of Being, uh, because um, if we agree that the fundamental question of philosophy should deal with, with the condition of being, in other words, that we agree that being or reality, we should, in some way, try to understand Reality through being, through, through this vital concept, through that basically distinguishes philosophy from all the other uh, sciences. Um, why? Why is this important? Well, it's important because it allows us um, to have not to have to have a conversation with being rather than uh, a dialogue. Uh, uh, this this difference between conversation and dialogue is. is it's vital to understand, to understand in particular what Heidegger would do later on. In other words, in the second Heidegger we have after the 1930s. It's vital because it allows philosophy not to be framed within not simply one understanding of being, but also to to understand that that being is really a possibility we have to continue to philosophize. In other words, if being would be one objective or one description in itself, um, or one, one description that we can sort of be all satisfied with well, philosophy would be over. There wouldn't be any more questions. And instead, um, what Heidegger is trying to tell us here is that, well, if we understand being as something that we have to, that we have to relate ourselves to to being, and that being also has to relate to us, in other words, it, it speaks to us in some way, events, events in history in some way, they continue to speak to us, well, then philosophy becomes a conversation. A conversation that allows all those differences that I, that I mentioned before to emerge. So this is something also that Gadamer picked up from, um, Gadamer was one of Heidegger's most important, uh, probably the most important disciple. And he insisted very much on the difference between a conversation and a dialogue, because in a dialogue, uh, we all know where it's going to end. Uh, A conversation is more loose um, in a way it's at large, like I like to call being now. Uh, We don't know how it's going to end. Uh, Plato, for example, he had dialogue, right? He explained to to the slave what was outside the cave, and if he did not understand it, he would drag him out. With violence right, to show him the truth. Well, that's more or less what happened uh, in Iraq, uh, trying to force everybody to uh, to vote for democracy. Um, instead, the idea of 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 conversation is different. There is a sort of an exchange there that if you we are open enough to um, um to to accept it or to understand differently in some way, then we might get both to somewhere else and also change all of us together. So the idea of a conversation is to to allow being to continue to speak to us. And of course, to allow ourselves also to change through that same conversation.
1: One of the most important elements of Heidegger's thought is his understanding of truth, which you show was a key point of contention between him and his philosophical mentor, Edmund Husserl what was the conception of truth Heidegger was pushing against and how did he want us to think of truth?
0: Well, Heidegger, um, it's important to remember that he ended his collaboration with Husserl um, not only because he interpreted uh, uh, phenomenology in a, in a very metaphysical way, but also because he attempted to dissolve philosophy in a series of regional ontologies, which, by the way, are the origins of much uh, realism today. Um let's it's important to remember also that well who's a thought of truth in terms of difference between mere intention and the matter itself, um which also in some way presupposes that duplicity of being common to our metaphysical tradition. Um so in some way there is a difference here between the manner in which something in fact appears and the manner in which it is in itself. Um now Heidegger uh, contrasted this. He did not believe that this was uh, this in some way was, was not taking the ontological difference seriously. Um, and so Heidegger, in some way he thought he to turn everything around and, um, and and in some way tried to explain that a statement, for example, this is a mouse in my hand uh, is not the primary place of truth, but it's the other way around. in other words, the statement. Um, it's, a, it's only a mode of appropriation of how, uh, how the mouse discloses itself. In other words, for Heidegger, truth is not something that we can, in some way, even, even in some way assimilate to an opt, to, a, to an aesthetic vision. On the contrary, for Heidegger, truth is a discloseness. Um, it's, it's, it's in a way, it's a, it's a form of, of lighting. This is, I think it's a good way to explain this. It's a form of allowing objects to reveal themselves on its own. Uh, in order to do this, um, of course, um, one has to be open for this. Uh, in order for truth not to be a simply simply a correspondence between what we think of it and what the object is in itself, we have to be open to the other possibilities. In other words, to what the former con- um, metaphysical conceptual scheme, which is the one of Husserl and all metaphysics, does not allow us to see. In other words, there is something missing there. How do that whatever is missing is, is in a way more important? And so the idea of 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 interpreting truth as a discloseness, as what opens up, uh, it's also a way of not only of overcoming metaphysics, but also of overcoming um, The indifference of metaphysics. Uh, Heidegger talks about metaphysics as being a very indifferent conceptual scheme because it does not take everything. It does not take those those things that do not emerge immediately. So the idea of Heidegger is that well, truth is not simply what is objective in front of you. It is actually even before that. Even before that, it is what discloses itself. This, of course, has a lot to do with how how we understand language. Uh, And even before that, how uh, language discloses itself throughout the different epochs of
1: being. Turning to interpretation, you start bringing in a number of other thinkers to supplement your understanding of hermeneutics here. A couple key thinkers you bring into play are Gianni Vattimo and Richard Rorty, who emphasized hermeneutics role as a form of or tool for political resistance. How did they see hermeneutics playing this role in our contemporary philosophical and political landscape?
0: So, yeah, this is important because um, both Roy and Battemel, uh in a way are closer to Heidegger's hermeneutics than Gadamer. This is something very important because a lot of people, unfortunately, the history of hermeneutics um, has been very much conditioned by, by Gadamer, who, of course, who, by the way, was... was big architect of the world, of what we understand of hermeneutics today but at the same time uh Gadamer course similar to Heidegger was also very conservative uh, and his and the problem is that he he presented in truth and Methods in 1960 he presented a, a history and an understanding of hermeneutics that's a quite conservative um, key the truth is that Gadamer had to in some way prepare hermeneutics for academia in other words Create a, uh, a discipline out of hermeneutics, um, and so he. This is why the role of dialogue, the way he proposed dialogue, was also a little bit, um, a little bit conservative. Um, here, what's important about Rorty and Batym was that in some way they 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 are closer to what Heidegger's sort of hermeneutic. For Heidegger, hermeneutics was a very was a very practical matter. was a very um, it was something that had to do with uh, an activity actually, um, and that's why it had. For Heidegger, it, the origins of hermeneutics in the in Hermes, in the Greek god of being in some way um, an anarchic figure. Uh, it's it's vital for them. This is why in the book I try to in the second part I try to 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 open up a whole history of hermeneutics um, by not only talking about Words and Bateman but also Freud Nietzsche uh, Augustine and uh, and Luther because. There is an anarchic vein that runs throughout hermeneutics. So, interpretation is not a, a pacific enterprise about dialogue. Uh, interpretation is an action; it's an anarchic activity, uh, which is in part also quite dangerous. There is there is always a, a moment of danger in, in interpretation. Why? Well, uh, Rote and Batimo have not only. In some way explain it, but also have to put this in practice. In other words, if we think about who interprets, who are the ones who need to interpret? Well, uh, certainly not the ones that are satisfied with, with the order, with whatever the order is today. Uh, the ones who interpret are the ones that are, are not happy at all with the order, with the, the way reality is. Uh, these are the ones who practice so, when Luther, for example, uh, translated the Bible and, uh, and translated for the first time the Bible, he was literally saying, well, everybody should be able to interpret uh, the Bible. It's not something that should be only for a certain number of people. So, the idea here is that, well, Batimo and Rorty, they both use hermeneutics to go, the first one to go against the political consequences of globalization, and Rorton said to go against the rigidity of analytic philosophy. Um, this is Batimo of course he went all the way uh to um for him for him uh, globalisation represented a more advanced and established phase of Adorno and Horkheimer, uh the total administrative organization system, which of course today has switched levels which Adorno would have not have imagined. Uh and for Batimo the idea is that hominetics allowed in some way to disrupt, to break, uh and to create some sort of problem within the system. Uh, Homeric it's 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 a problem as a discipline. Uh, it is constantly trying to um, to to suggest not only different interpretation, but also to to stress that interpretation is itself what existence is. Uh, and this is why, for Batimo it interpretation, in some way, um, it it is the form to it is it's the method we have basically to unmask in some way. Uh, the complicity of, of power, and also in particular the role that now philosophy is starting to uh, have for a while now been in some way uh, submitting to science. Uh, so, humanistic it's a problem for for institutions, for the establishment, and um, and actually uh, basically for all society to a certain point because it it's really a request of freedom to maintain the possibility of freedom open. So, while for Batimo hominetics is very useful to unmask a political this political um, this political problem we have today for rooting said it was more uh, an issue of trying to 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 show how analytic philosophy back in the, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and i, I actually think also today to, to some extent um, has been too uh, not only too, linguist, too linguistic, but also too logical in some way. Uh, Rorty's for royalty hermeneutics has what's in For royalty hermeneutics was also a problem because by endorsing hermeneutics, uh, he at the same time uh, he also lost his job uh, when he published *Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature* in 1979. Um, royalty was. Was basically forced afterwards to uh, to move to a comparative literature department. Uh, his idea that hermeneutics was the future of, of philosophy and that analytic philosophy had run its course uh, was of course was was a sort of a terrorist attack in uh, at the time uh, a terrorist intellectual attack at the time in American academia. So for both of them, hermeneutics it's a way to um, um, to, to demonstrate that philosophy has to maintain uh, a conflictual, um, conflictual um, a conflictual a conflict stance in some way the hermeneutical stance for royalty and vatimo is a request to maintain freedom open and therefore any political or philosophical uh, system that tries to frame it will be will be there <clears throat> uh, would be there would be necessary to in some way unmask and i think this is what what hermeneutic meant for them.
1: After this history of hermeneutics, you turn to the idea of emergency, which was developed in Heidegger's concept of notlosigkeit which is a fairly difficult to translate term, but also a very important one, especially in his post-being and time work. So can you give us a sense of what he meant by it and what you're trying to get at with it?
0: Well, um, yes. Uh, well the idea of of NERD, which is which is translated the idea of distress flight or emergency um it's a, it's a concept that became central for Heidegger in the nineteen thirties um which has a lot to do with the idea of the technological replacement of beings with beings uh, in other words with the idea that um in some way um, uh Calculation and technology uh, has, has reached a level of framing of control uh, to such a point that uh, well even emergencies have become framed in some way. Um, the idea is that for heidegger um, which Heidegger did not really discuss too much this, this problem of emergency this is, this can be found in pre- mo- well, Richard Paul has a very big book on the problem of Heidegger and the emergency. I try to to move beyond that, but the idea of Heidegger is that well, you know, the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency, uh, and what he means by this is that well, the greatest emergency we have is that being cannot emerge anymore, right? Being cannot um, cannot emerge from from that technological um, technological system we have in some way created. Um, now, I think it's, it's important to, um, uh, here the problem for, for Heidegger, here the problem was very much related to technology. I tried to move a little bit beyond this and try to, to understand that, well, now, the greatest emergencies are the ones which are missing. This does not mean that certain emergencies we have, um, are not, are not important. Uh, but we have to be able in some way to interpret those tensions in history that allow these emergencies to come out. So when Heidegger explained that um, uh, the problem is that it's not that it's not when something doesn't function, but rather when everything functions, this is, it's a way of, of suppressing this idea of emergency. In other words, we have, for Heidegger, we have created such a system of, of, uh, of control and, and functioning where What it's been lost and what has in some way been lost is thought. In other words, in other words, our practice of thinking. Uh, It's very difficult to think nowadays. It is much more easy to calculate in some way. So for Heidegger, um, Heidegger believes we have lost those tensions that in some way animate history and also animate uh, our ways to. to think, uh, actually, in one of th- in, uh, in one of the volumes of the Black Notebooks, Hadigah even mentioned how it has been uh, it even uh, unacceptable today to make mistakes, and and this is actually something that is quite true. So, what are we losing by creating this system of uh, of total functioning? Well, again, we're losing a certain freedom, right? A certain freedom to um, uh, a certain freedom to make mistakes, but often out of these mistakes, uh, there's also a creation, in particular if we think in the humanities, but not only in the humanities. So this is what I think Heidegger was, was going for. Um, and again, this is this is not, for Heidegger, this is not an ontic issue. This is an ontological issue. Uh, and the problem of emergency for Heidegger is also a problem of, of being, not taking place anymore, not occurring anymore. So we have to find ways to allow being to, to emerge again. Uh, and of course, um, the idea of emergency has a lot to do with the word, to emerge, too.
1: Jumping off of this discussion, you turn to a number of other European thinkers, such as Carl Schmidt, Walter Benjamin, and Giorgio Agamben, who all had various ideas around the concept of emergency soup. Obviously, there are going to be variations between them, but you see a kind of core set of ideas coming up in this section, particularly relating to the personal or existential and how it connects with the political. So can you unpack what's going on here regarding the importance of emergency?
0: Yes. Um, well, I think the best way to understand the, the, best way to understand the difference also between, uh, between what I am trying to... What I what I understand by emergency and what uh, these authors you mentioned do is it's uh, it's by thinking of um, the, so when um, state of exception or state of emergency became became central concept uh, right after nine eleven and uh, and the publication of Agamben's state uh, state of exception um, Agamben. Uh, believes that the state of exception has become vital to understand and interpret global politics after uh, George Bush's invasion of of Iraq. Um, So the declaration of a state of exception, according to to Agamben, has not only disclosed the performative expression of state power, but also foreclosed in some way any possibilities of meaningful democratic politics. Now, I think that a good way to understand this is to think about trump today. I think instead that the state of perception um, it's not enough today to understand politics in other words and and trump in some way uh, and also some other uh, right wing populists they 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 point this out because um, while while for while for bush um, what was important was to try to exercise Extra legal power to transform state of exception into routine political measures. Uh, for Trump, instead, the idea is to deny emergencies altogether. In other words, the absence of emergency that I um, that I that I try to explain—it's it's perfectly evident in Trump. For Trump, there are no emergencies, or even worse, the emergencies that are there depend on what he says. So when Trump declared that. Uh, the environmental our environmental crisis is not an emergency, which he declared many times, and he also we've seen this even this past uh, month with uh, the coronavirus. Well, that that's where the greatest emergency turns out, right? right. And that that's where the the big problem is. Uh, I'm not saying that there aren't many emergencies, like refugee crisis, which is a clear emergency, or um, or the rise of white wing populism, which is also another another emergency. Uh, but the greatest emergency is when we deny them. Uh, and so the, the example we have now of uh, downplaying the coronavirus, which by the way is something that basically only Trump and Bolsonaro have uh, still tried to do in some way or are trying to, are trying to. they are incarnating this idea of the absence of emergency. Now, what is important here is to, is to remember that... Um, uh, the, uh, the idea here is that Heidegger's idea of the absence of emergency, in a way, it is phenomenologically comes before Agamben, Schmitt, and Benjamin's state of exception. In other words, uh, the idea that the sovereign decides on state of exception is really a consequence of metaphysics, of this total organization and framing of reality, and et cetera, et cetera. So the idea here is that if we want to understand uh, our spiritual or, or political predicament today. We need to first understand why the greatest emergency is the absence of emergency. It is. It is through the absence of emergency that we will understand whether what the sovereign will do or will not do. Uh, this is the way I think. It's imp- I think it's the best way to uh, to move from one to the other and uh, and to understand that. Um, the absence of emergency is really, it's really, it's really how we should understand today—not only our greatest emergency, but also what being has become. Uh, in other words, what we discussed at the beginning. So being does not, cannot even emerge anymore. Cannot even emerge as an emergency anymore. So uh, this is particularly dangerous, and I think it's something that should be, uh, should be thought about by all philosophers.
1: Developing off of the ideas here around the lack of emergency, you look at several instances of lack or resistance. One of the first ones you see is regarding populism, which you consider a sort of political emergency, albeit one with a large hostility towards it. Um, can you kind of unpack the dynamic you see going on here?
0: Okay, well, uh, first of all, I uh, in the book, what I what I try to explain that I try to I try to point out three uh, three greatest emergencies we have today, um, and well, one of them, of course, is the, this one of populism. And my 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 idea here is to, first of all to distinguish populism between right wing and left wing populism. I I do not really uh, there could be a third a third a third version of populism today, which is digital populism. But in the book I discuss, you know, following Chantal Mouffe and uh, Annette Laclau, um, works, there is a difference between right wing and left wing populism. It's not the same. Populism is it's, it's a sort of uh, doesn't really mean anything if we do not, it's like democracy. It could be both um, uh it could be could be lying more to the left or to the right. There is there is a difference there. Uh and I think that what the greatest emergency today is it's not the fact that we have right wing populism, but rather that we don't have any elected populism. Um, this is i think the most important uh, this is i think the greatest emergency we have today so also it's it's important so what is the difference between one and the other because unfortunately um the fact that we talk about populism uh in a very broad and general way without making the distinction i think it's very unfair to those leftist populism populists who have not been able to to secure power um or voted uh, yeah, secure power in just these recent times, except for a few countries like Spain, where I live now. So in some way, um, you know, right wing populism, is based on the idea of uh, uh, fear of the foreigner, um, in, it's also based on hatred and indifference. And all this, of course, you can find this in right wing populists, as Trump and Bolsonaro, who basically work following this, uh, this scheme. Left in populism is very different. It's hope for a better future. Uh, it's based on uh, equality and uh, and justice for all. And uh, instead of including categories of people, uh, it focuses on sectors of the establishment at the service of neoliberalism, um, of the neoliberal global corporation. So the idea of left in populism, uh, one should question how come there aren't any leftist populists. I think that, that's one of the reasons, one of the greatest emergencies we have today. And, uh, and the fact that we do not distinguish between one and the other, it's also another big problem we have. But, but, but the issue here is how come uh, leftist populism have not been able to emerge okay, in this situation? Uh, of course, this has a lot to do with, that, with the return to order and return to reality that I mentioned that I mentioned
1: before. You look at the currently developing issue of climate change as operating as a sort of emergency for us, albeit one that is often either hidden from view or depicted in the form of individual disconnected crises, disabling their capacity to function as proper emergencies. Can you explain what you see going on and how we often think about climate change here?
0: Yes. uh, Well, climate change, of course, it's it's my... my favorite example uh, to discuss the absence of emergency because um, here we are in the midst of a pandemic that has been, we've been warned many, many times uh, uh, for years and also even last year, um, the WHO director warned us that we we should be prepared for some such an emergency. But again, the greatest emergency is the one that are absent, the one that we do not take into consideration all so um, the idea here is that um, a, a crisis like the coronavirus we're facing now um, uh, it simply suggests that in some way we this is an emergency that until very recently was absent. Uh, now it has turned into an emergency. It has turned. It has. It has. Has become an emergency in some way. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, the problem here is that we, you know, this is not the only emergency we have. Uh, in the book, I talk about biodiversity, which is, which is another, uh, which is actually probably at the origin of this um, this pandemic we have today. And uh, it's, you know, bio, biodiversity loss is one of the greatest emergencies we've been we have not been confronting this past year, and now the coronavirus is a good example of it's good consequences of that. Um, the problem with I think that we should remember here is that, um, you know, climate change. It's an emergency. It's an ab- it's an absent emergency. and will probably continue to be an absent emergency after this uh, pandemic, uh, after we overcome this pandemic, and I hope it would be very soon. But I wonder whether we are we are we are able to if we haven't been able to to tackle the environmental emergency, which. By the way, uh, you know there are many more viruses waiting for us uh, under the um, under on the glaciers and uh, and so yeah, the problem with the environment is that uh, here here the ontological difference of Heidegger I think would work very well to understand because the ontological difference would allow us to see those possibilities, those differences that we not we don't want to imagine in some way, uh, not even taken into consideration. I think the, the environment is very important here because it, it's, it, it's a philosophical issue that in some way concerns the philosopher, uh, but but it concerns also its relation to being. Uh, its relation to being uh, it, it's also natural in some way. That's why Heidegger talks a lot about uh, the uprooting from the earth. We have to in some way return to that earth uh, and return into that earth means to think about the environment. Um, Well, I tried to explain this, but I anyway, let's move on.
1: Yeah, so finally, you turn to the example of whistleblowers as figures trying to create an emergency for us, bringing to light certain events that have been covered up, often at great risk to themselves, as in the case of figures like Julian Assange, Ed Snowden, or Chelsea Manning. Or one could also think of some of the journalists who lost their lives in the wake of the publication of the Panama Papers. So, how do whistleblowers function in terms of a hermeneutic emergency here?
0: Okay, well, um, it's a very good question because the um, problem with whistleblowers here, and it's that um, you know they they are they have shown us that. The value, or even the weight, of truth—they um, have shown us that even if we show you the truth, all the documents, we show you everything, nothing will change. So they sh- there in some way the way they reveal truth and how truth has been revealed. It's a very good indication that well, truth does not does not does not work uh, does not stand up. Uh, for itself alone uh, truth needs just like in other words um, neither of these whistleblowers and of course there are many more besides the one that i that i mentioned uh, you're right to 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 refer to the ones of the Panama papers too uh, their work only works only functions if a great a big paper allowed them to to tell the news in other words, they are the incarnation of the hominical idea that, well, truth alone does not work. You need major newspapers, you need um, uh, government agencies, you need academics. We need a huge amount of uh, of people to, to help us, to help facts in some way. Ha- facts alone don't work. Uh, this is why... Uh, uh, the truth they revealed would not have emerged if it wouldn't have been for those. I think it's the Guardian, New York Times, and the other papers that allow them to to publish those those news. So, uh, in some way, they are telling us that they are showing us how frame we are. Uh, the fact that so few, almost I don't think any government has been, uh, very few government have, have had serious serious troubles after some of this revelation. It's an indication that. How frame the, the, um, the system is a frame to the point of uh, of not making a very big difference if we know precisely everything the actual truth um, and so I think that um, uh, in some way hominetics uh, they are they are telling us in some ways how important it is that we become autonomous interpreters how important it is that we in some way, manage to uh, to strive for interpretation, uh, because because facts alone do not work. So when uh, we are te- we are told that there are alternative facts out there, um, well, we have to you know we have to make sure that we we listen carefully to who who is telling this to us and who else can help us understand this further. Uh, this is why I think that one of the problems of social media has been. Of, uh, of becoming in some way some sort of uh, some sort of um, communication um, uh, outlet, uh, so um, yeah, I think whistleblowers, of course, are, are vital. They are also a consequence of this return to order that I mentioned before, uh, and they show how strong this return to order is because very little change will occur after um, after. Truth is even revealed to us.
1: Yeah, so that brings us to the end of the book. Uh, So to wrap things up as a final uh, sign-off, your book has hermeneutics as its conceptual backbone, and it's very much a part of your academic life, but you clearly see it as having effects and implications that go well beyond the confines of the academy. Instead, you see it as a part of our everyday lives as well as our politics. In closing, how do you see the relationship between hermeneutics and politics today? And how would you encourage people to uh, engage more hermeneutically in their everyday political lives?
0: Right. How to engage more hermeneutically in the political life? That's vital, right? Uh, and it's vital that we manage in some way to, uh, of course, doing, being more hermeneutical, hermeneutically active does not necessarily only mean having your own interpretation. It means uh, understanding how important it is to help facts, like I said before, uh, but also to understand that um, homeric it's it's much more uh, than than a simple academic discipline, like you said. Uh, it really involves us in a in a in, it involves us existentially in some way. Um, this is why I think that you know, given how framed we are today, or uh, to the level of framing that politics but also the academia of course but in general the, the level of surveillance we have reached today what really makes us human beings today or distinguishes us among each other also from from uh, as human beings is really interpretation it is really that anarchic um, uh, that anarchic effort we make to to show that difference that is always missing there uh, this is why I think it it is very important to, um, to point out that uh, in, in some way, how, how, are, how can we be, this is, I want to sort of finish off by pointing out that, how can we be, how can we see the absence of emergency, the greatest emergency, which is the absent one? How, what, what do we need there in order to see it, right? Um, and I think that it's very important here to, to think of this formula that we shouldn't be really rescued from emergencies, but rather we should be rescued into emergencies in other words uh, being being closer to emergencies uh, it, it's basically what is going to save us but in order to to get close to this to this danger because of course, uh thinking about an absent emergency like refugee crisis or 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 the environment uh, or even the environment uh, it comes with some danger uh, activists have uh, it's, this is not a pacific, um, peaceful, uh, peaceful engagement. It takes it takes some courage to go to to talk about certain emergencies, and I think that hominetics, given its anarchic vein of uh, of trying in some way also always to um, to confront um, technology, but also in general whatever framing powers uh, really limit our freedom, I think it is the way to um, it is it is what can help us in some way to become. Uh, autonomous interpreters, in other words, interpreters who are not satisfied with the world order or reality or whatever whatever the framing is in for each one of us, and has to some has to stand up to that. Uh, I think, and one of the ways to do this is through hermeneutic, because interpretation gives you that uh, that possibility of emancipation from an objectivity, from a functionality, from a framing. That probably has not been chosen by you in other words what uh, the fact that most of our um, most of our communication passes through only Google which is a private company uh, should make us think how autonomous we actually are well hermetic can help us maintain that very critical stance very anarchic stance uh, which is really only there to keep the idea of being open, to keep the possibility of being emerging when it is necessary. And it is necessary every time it is absent. So hermeneutic philosophy, it's a way to maintain open the possibility of freedom, which includes difference and includes also, of course, our own uh, existence.
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful kind of way to close. So as a final question, what are you working on now?
0: Uh, Right now I'm preparing a, a new book, on uh, the problem of disruption, um, disruption, uh, as everybody knows, it's, it's a concept uh, mostly used in uh, business um, in, um, in business management by Christensen, this um, uh, this professor of Harvard that recently passed away, and I am trying to reconstruct the history of disruption uh, through um, this French philosopher Bernard Stiegler, and also through Heidegger. Uh, and it has really a lot to do with um, with the idea of um, being rescued into the emergency, because I think that well, the fact that we um, we receive so many, I think that in some way I think the absence of emergency can be also called disruption, um, which it's something that it's not only a, a rupture, but it's also. Um, we have to find. I have to, in some way, I'm thinking of hermeneutics as a possibility. You mentioned conversation before, so hermeneutics is a, it's a way of continuing the conversation against a number of disruptions, technological, but not only. That unfortunately we have to, um, we have to, uh, we have to confront now.
1: That sounds uh, like an absolutely fascinating book. I really look forward to that now. So uh, Santiago Zabala, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you very much. I I, I really appreciate uh, this conversation.